getting to know who your learners are and what it is that they need, what, you're, what are you actually solving for? Because oftentimes when you ask the question and you find out what you're actually solving for, what they've asked you to build is not gonna solve it. And, and if you get close to your learners, like doing persona work, doing some empathy work, oftentimes you can figure out a better way to get it done that is less intrusive on our learners and that is easier for you to build and deploy. Hello and welcome to the Making Better podcast, where we talk about making individuals, teams, and organizations better. Whether you are a manager, a coach, or a learning development professional, this show will give you actionable insights on how to raise your performance and the performance of those around you. My name is Matt Jertson, founder of Better Everyday Studios, and our guest today is Anne Rawlings. Anne is the Chief Solutions Architect and Vice President of Custom Solutions for Blanchard, a premier global leadership development company. I got to know Anne at a recent planning event for the ATD Technology Conference, where she scared everyone, frankly, and me included, about the potential pitfalls of misusing copyrighted content. Yes, t today we're going to talk about all the times that you might have inadvertently broken the law when making content for your organizations. Thankfully, Anne has a really simple solution for all of us so that we can stop these bad practices. But before we get into the episode, I need to remind anybody new here to make sure you subscribe so you never miss a future episode of the show. And if you have already subscribed, then I would ask that you share this show with at least one other person person because that is how we grow. I can't thank you enough uh, or tell you how much it means to me. And so with that, let's get started. And I am so excited to have you here today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really good. It's a gorgeous autumn day in the Denver metro. It's beautiful, 60 degrees, but it's going to snow in a couple of days. So I'm enjoying it while it lasts. Yeah, Colorado is one of those states where it, it, it's a state of extremes. I remember from living there where it can be very hot. And, and when it's hot, it's like dangerously hot because you're so high. So it can you know really burn you. And then it can get blisteringly cold. And so those, those days in the middle are magical. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Thanks for asking. Yeah, well, I am really glad to have you here today because, so as I mentioned in the intro, we met as part of, we're both on the Association for Talent Development's planning committee for their, uh, for their talent, talent tech knowledge conference. Yes. And um, when we were at dinner, we were talking about intellectual property and protected content. And I know you... You scared me. You scared other people at the organ at, at the dinner table. It sounds like you give a lot of talks where you kind of scare people around this subject. So, but the good news is that you have some great solutions. It's not just be scared. It's be scared of doing it wrong. And here's how you do it right. So, I'm I'm really excited to have this conversation. And to to set the stage, what I want to start with is when you talk about protected content and you care about this a lot you know you see this a lot because you're at Blanchard which has a lot of content that you yourself are protecting and so when you say protected content what do you mean yeah for sure so as we think about protected content and, and prior to my my arrival at Blanchard I've been there for just about four years and I'm I'm their chief solution architect so I lead our custom solutions team uh, for the organization but before then, I was leading an instructional design team, and we were building custom work product for clients across every industry that you might imagine. 
Um, it might be face-to-face, -face, it might be e-learns, it might be all kinds of content um, and experience that we were that we were creating net new. And of course, the 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 challenge when platforms like Degreed and Edcast came to be, kind of their panacea was you can bring together all of this incredible world-class content into your learning solutions seamlessly, easily. And that sounded really, really great. Um, and as we were, my partner in crime, Myra Roldan, who many people who listen to your podcast probably are also, also aware of, you know, as we were building and at conferences and people started talking about using these platforms and bringing in content and importing things that they found online, it started us thinking, hold on a second, just because we've got a platform that can aggregate and bring things together does not mean the content that you found is actually, even though that you could do it, is it legal for you to do it? And yeah. we put a lot of a lot of thought into and research into, you know, what are the what are the follies of our ways? And you know, whether you've got a degree or an EdCast or other kinds of platforms that do that kind of curation work, curation sparked very specific ideas about five, six, seven, eight years ago in our industry that highlighted the question of, if I can pull down a PDF of an HBR article, or if I can grab a link to a TED Talk video that's out on YouTube, what's the harm in me bringing that into, say, a leadership development class for new supervisors? Yeah. And the answer is, it's extraordinary detrimental. You know, when you've, <laughs> got, when you've got authorial ownership of concepts, of frameworks, of um, thought leadership that is woven around, um, it's not free. Um, and it, yeah. it, it is protected by the law. So anything that is written by an author that is original thought leadership um, certainly, certainly falls into that protected space. So whether it's censored yeah. or it's our authors and our product development team writing content around a model for building trust, or it is an article at Fast Company that talks about learning agility and why it's so important. Those things are protected by those bodies that have published and and actually authors that have written um, that content area. So that's what I think. Yeah, yeah it's it's really wide ranging, and I think you're. It's it's crazy just of how commonplace it's it seems so commonplace it seems so just like well of course it's just it's there like it's kind of like it's it's on the internet so the internet is free like we all just we, but it, I, and correct me if i'm wrong i believe you said there there's actually been some some laws around this right there's there's mm -hmm. been some legal cases around this have there been any decisions mm -hmm. that you're specifically thinking about mm -hmm. not specific decisions necessarily but as we were doing our research you know there are algorithms that these publishing organizations have so for instance, if I'm a member of a small L&D team and I'm putting together my frontline supervisor program and I found this really, really great article in SHRM and I, I want to provide that as kind of a pre-read, maybe I'm not going to create content from it, which is also illegal, but I, I really want them to use this as a pre-read as part of their program. You know, I have to get permission to be able to use that um, and, and the penalties are extraordinary. Now, of course, there's due process. So the initial step is a cease and desist, say from SHRM or from HBR or from um, or from TED. And that means I've got to stop using it immediately. That means it pulls out of my program, should never have been there to begin with. 
Um, it's probably going to be a, a frightening letter from an attorney. Um, you know, the second thing, if they were to go to litigation, the fines are extraordinary. And the bigger cost, however, is that they can cause you to shelve whatever program that one little article was nestled in legally, you can be required to shelve that program. So all of the design time, dollars, mindshare, everything organizationally that was sunk into building that program, it is now sunset and it is not legal to use that program any longer. So the consequences can go from a little slap on the hand, don't do that. You don't want to be on their radar. It's poor form. Yeah. All the way yeah. to, you know, financial um, judgments against an organization, all the way to shelving your product and, and larger, you know, reputation damage for organizations that hit the radar for doing for behaving in that way. Yeah. And and for anybody who who thinks, you know, oh, I mean, well, Ted Ted has their own free website out there that everybody can just go access. Clearly, Ted doesn't care. Ted cares a lot. Ted created an entirely new business line just devoted to selling their content to companies. So they care. They care a whole lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what about because I think around this. You know, a lot of people might just say, well, it's fair use, right? Like it's, it's, it's you know, copyright fair use. It's used for education. It's all fine. Um, why doesn't that work? Yeah. If you're not a, a teacher in a school system, it's not for education. If you're a company that makes money and if you work for a training department mm. for a company that makes money, it's not fair use. And so fair mm-hmm. use is very, very specific in terms of who are the people that can actually use it and for what very specific purposes and in what permutations can they use it? Meaning, you know, can I can I copy a link? Can I include a PDF? It's very specific. Um, and largely, um, when we talk about people who are doing the work that you and I do every day, we are working for organizations that are developing talent for the purposes of a business to make money. I'm not an education system, not for higher education, not for students that are not part of a unified body. And so if you if you think about kind of the branch, like does fair use apply to me? Yes, no. The first question is, do you work in an L&D team that works, that, that serves an organization that's design is to make money? And if, if yeah. that is yes, then fair use is out the window for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's, you know, you mentioned in our previous, before we got on here, we were talking a little bit about AI. And I do think, interestingly enough, AI, though it dramatically exacerbates this problem, it may also, because of that, cause some of the solution to this problem in the sense that I was listening to an interview with the CEO of YouTube. And, you know, YouTube exists because of their creators, right? If there aren't really strong, good creators on YouTube, then YouTube goes away. And there's a certain level of repurposing that creators do like, some creators like. They they potentially like it when people take their videos and clip their videos and it helps them grow. But AI is now allowing people, you know, if you're the Joe Rogan show and you have countless hours of video on a platform of you, AI enables just a complete recreation of that. And so, um, and so I think in order to protect their creators, uh, YouTube is at least in the beginning stages or different platforms are start in the beginning stages of creating things that are more like 
digital thumbprints, you know, or all, mm -hmm. you can almost imagine like a, a blockchainification of, of stuff mm -hmm. to, to control it a little bit better so that we know, because it's going to be, because I mean, you know, in our world, like Simon Sinek might be a good example. We're not that far off from somebody to be, from somebody being able to create a completely fake video of a Simon Sinek talk yeah. and people not being able to tell. We're right. not that far away, right. um, but but because of that, maybe some like platforms are just going to have to find ways to to protect it, or else nobody would create anymore. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it Tom Hanks, whose likeness was being used in a video that was built by AI to um, rep and sell dental like dental services. And wow. so, so certainly this is an issue that is a hot button in Hollywood. It is a super hot button in organizations that are that are IP and authorial ownership based. Because when you think about, you know, for instance, let's let's think about say a jet a chat GPT. How much stuff is out there that has been kind of ingested? From, from all of the sources that we've talked about today, from yes. Harvard, from HBR, from Fast Company, from um, you know, all of the periodicals. And suddenly, you know, you do Myra Roldan again. She's my best friend. She's actually here with me this week. Um, she's working upstairs in the office upstairs. But she actually nice. did a, a quick TikTok video that was using GPT, and it's on the same line of discussion. and she had to build a, a course and the very first the very first learning asset it came back with the course was great you know lovely kind of worked through everything it needed to work through but video number one was a video by tim slade who is you know one of our our thought leaders in our industry yeah. right now for e-learning design and development he has his own instructional design um, academies and e-learning development academies and the very first video, the very first asset in this program was a video that Tim did not give anyone's permission to use for any purposes. Yeah. It's his personal yeah. IP that he actually sells as part of a program. And so yeah. the, the risks of using these tools, and I think to your point earlier, the discussion about blockchain or the discussion about some kind of very, very clear capture and record of where content is, where it lives, where it's being used, and making sure that it's not used without permission, without the appropriate financial agreements that need to be in place. I think that's yeah. the next frontier because right now it's like AI has arrived and it's almost like the horses have run out of the ring. And we're yes. going to, have to do a lot of work to get those horses back in the ring and get the right protections that. And, and the laws haven't caught up with it either, which means there's going to be a no. number of years where things are going to be a little out of hand, for sure. But and there and and yeah. there's lawsuits against OpenAI right now. Yes. You know there there yeah. are lots of authors and artists who are saying, "Hey, I never gave you the right to train on my data," and I do think there is a potential world, and I think this is probably the right world that you only you only get to train on your data. Like right. and, and that would be it would be great for a company like Blanchard. You have so much IP, you could create a really good AI model based off of your yeah. IP. Yeah. And it would and you have enough that it would be good. Um, and so it would rather than it would create a world that 
I didn't expect us to go in this direction in this conversation, which is great. Um, it, it would create a world that would incentivize the creation of IP so that you could train AI models and then leverage it all the more versus um, incentivizing being the person in the back who's not really doing anything yourself and just kind of like using the work of others to, to build off of. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So really, it's so the conversation is so interesting and lively right now. Um, at Blanchard, you know, we're we've got a, an AI think tank that has been working through, um, you know, thinking about current state, future state, you know, the implications of AI on our business. From how do we actually, how do we actually refine processes potentially using AI to help streamline in certain areas where it makes sense. Yeah. You know, what are the things that we need to do on the flip side to protect our business and to protect our intellectual property? What are the things we need to do to protect the identity of people who work for your organization? You know, when you go in to a chat GPT and you create your account with your work, with your work email address, you know, you're starting to give it things that help to isolate so that so that certainly um, content cues and searches could be brought up. But I think a really, a really interesting thing is part of our think tank. I suggested everyone go in and have ChatGPT write a resume for you, your name, first, middle, last, mm -hmm. and see mm -hmm. what it comes back with. And it's kind of a Frankenstein oh. that comes back. At least, I mean, I'm a doctor. I'm a medical doctor who is also a learning leader, and so yeah. I found that very interesting. Um, however, when I when I kind of bringing it back and thinking about the implication for organizations and having policies around it, um, there's a lot to think about. And our, we have clients that are saying, you know, I don't, I want a clause in the contract that says I, AI was not used in the creation of my work products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, where that, where that stems back to is if you were creating something that is bespoke, that was built for me, that is connected to my values, my strategic pillars, to the things that matter most to me as a stakeholder and a sponsor that is paying a lot of money for a learning solution that will scale globally. I need to know that heads and hands were yeah. actually, you know, the, the mastermind of that product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I would anticipate that we'll start seeing some of that as well. And they are AI detector um, tools that are out there. So clients could run something through an AI detector tool to validate, mm -hmm. you know, that things aren't coming up on the radar as having used AI to build them. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that we're we've got a couple of new frontiers that we are just on the edge of, but it really is an extension of that content curation uh, yeah. conversation yeah. that was happening, you know, in 2015, yeah. 2016. You know, and the laws haven't caught up really, so it's going to be long litigation cycles before we have probably really, really clear and defined guardrails. But the reality is, if we think about our common sense instincts that we have, if it is if it is thought leadership that was generated by an individual um, that was published as part of a large publication, that, that that is something that needs permission or a licensing agreement that has to be in place in order to use. Yeah. 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 So you have, you have a really good answer to this, but before we get to <laughs> that, I did wanna ask you, cause you kind of mentioned even the like, the creation of content, not just mm -hmm taking an article and putting it into your into your course but wh where do you see the line based on what based on what you've seen where do you think the line is between um 
creation and curation. You know, mm -hmm. like I've, you know, do I, if I'm creating a course, it's based off of all of these books behind me, mm -hmm. right? Like, cause I read them and they're in my head, but I'm not gonna go like ask for permission from all of those authors mm -hmm. to use, to, to do it. Um, because I'm 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 not doing that necessarily. You know, it's like it's it's all rolled rolling around in my head. So like where do you see as the line between this is my idea and I cuz there's a clear there's there's a clear wrong of I'm just going to take this PDF and throw right. it in my course. So I'm right. going to take Tim Slade's video and put it in my course. That's wrong. But below that, like where where do you see yeah, where where, where do you see other do you see other lines? Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm I mean, I certainly think about, like in our space, if we're talking about leadership development, uh, you know, if it's a if it's a model, if it's a framework, sure, if it is a yes. language that's used to wrap around the model, it belongs to someone. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, you know, principle based. As you start moving away from that, kind of getting into principles based. Um, if you were able to do research on a set of of five key principles and be able to substantiate that with research and evidence, right? Certainly there's a case there um, to be able to use that kind of content, but it is it is really sticky. I mean, if I'm, a, just an, if I'm an instructional, I say just an instructional designer, I am just an instructional designer, right? I am not an expert in, um, yeah. in flight. And so for me to write ground school training, I'm getting all of that from somewhere, whether it's mm -hmm. hiring a subject matter expert and doing interviews with subject matter experts to pull my content. That certainly is an option. Um, but, mm -hmm. but certainly for credibility and basis um, and to stay safe, you know, the typical instructional designer is not a deep learning expert on a lot of the topics that we write about. And so yep. it's whether it's having those internal experts inside, maybe supporting it yep. with some research and citing that research um, that yep. supports kind of your subject matter experts position. I think that that's a safe place to be for sure. You know, or yep. using organizational content that's happening in the organization, being able to cite things that we are seeing that we know work, see citing things that we know don't work. We want to avoid this kind of practice. And so building your learning on what does work based on actually body of body of evidence that's right here in the organization um, yeah i think that i think that that certainly rings true as a safe place it i think i feel like when as i'm listening to you talk it's really saying like you know be bolder be more creative and come yeah. up with and mm -hmm. have your own stuff you know like it's, it's making me feel really good about really early on in my uh when i was first getting into instructional design and i was reading a ton of books about how the brain works and all this stuff and i came up with this this idea of just like okay like good you know in order to get behavior change you need specificity contact or specificity connection and context and now that's my model that I talk about all the time, specificity, connection, context. Like I do talks on it. I've written, written, writing articles on it. And it's just a thing that I made up. And so it's all, it's, it's mine, you know? Um, but it's, you know, for the instructional designers out there, it's about like, 
having that belief in yourself of like, you can do this, like we can all do this. We can do the research, talk to enough people. And like, you don't need to use, like you were saying, the model that this other person used. Now, now, now sometimes there's a reason to, because it's research backed and it has like, and there's like a particular thing that you're trying to get. Um, but that research costs money and it took time. And so it makes sense that you would have find a way to credit them or get their permission or, or whatever it is, depending on the situation. Right. And I, I'll use a beautiful example from, from one of my clients at Blanchard. You know, as we're putting together a program, they really wanted to touch on how do we help people to think through their decisioning and identify if their decision is sound as a leader in an organization, right? Sure. There's tons of models out there on decision making. Yeah. yeah. You know, if their CEO had the simplest model, right? Excuse me, their CFO. How does and it, it was? How does it impact our customer experience? How does it impact our revenue growth goals? How does it impact our bottom line? How does it impact our people? Like that's that's how we want you thinking about it and actually giving thought. And it's it's so simple because again. It is based on the body of work that is happening around you. It is easy to put that kind of a framework together versus going out and pulling and trying to extrapolate or license someone's, you know, financial advantage decision-making model, right? Yeah. It's a much more common yeah. approach. Like you said, you, you observed, you saw certain things that were common and inherent that were, that would benefit and to be able to almost categorize these based on what you've seen, you know, sometimes simplest is best. And that's, yeah. that's what we've got to work with. And it's quickest to deploy, right? And that body of that body of work that we can base our observations on is right in front of us. Interview senior leaders at the organization, interview yep. customers, what's going on, interview subject matter experts, get their perspectives on things. Yep. Right. Yeah. A lot of that can live love in it. the organization. Lots of it. Yes. Yeah. I love it. But then kind of like we said, there are, there might still be times where you do want to use this yeah. stuff. You, sure. you do want access to it. And you know, that's why, and plenty of large companies, that's why they, that's where a lot of their training budget goes is it's to go purchase IP, but there's a lot of learning professionals out there. I, th I think the most common learning professional out there is the 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 solo learning professional. They yep. do everything. You never you don't know what their their job title might be training manager, it might be instructional designer, it might be who knows what. They're by themselves. They have very little budget. What if they want if they have this book, they just really love this book or their their whole ethos is around this one way of thinking, what can they do? What can they do? Hmm. That's such a great question. And it's a really important one because it's not just about building artifacts for formal learn, you know, with, with COVID changed the way we think about learning journey based space learning over time, highly blended, um, happening within the flow of work, right? Those are, those are the things that we're seeing everywhere. And a lot of that at, at Blanchard, the way we approach a lot of kind of the connective tissue, the things that are happening in the moments, our, our quick access to resources, you know, I'll, I'll use the leadership context. I work for a leadership company, obviously. Um, but this could apply to just about any domain area that you'd be building learning. You know, we've had our formal program on XYZ concepts, and I want to provide a selection of tools, maybe a, a virtual library or some digital resources in the moment of need 
like, I'm not going to give this to you now because you've already learned some things. I want you to apply them. And then as you need more, you can come back. We've got a, a library of freemium content that's written by our authors that we use, right, to provide mm -hmm. that. You know, but prior to joining Blanchard, we were still working to the same aim. But how do you get those digital assets or resources that are in the moment? And we had a, a client, a large global client, who who really wanted this to be this virtual library. And so they pulled together, called together so many really great links, and we were like, we can't use them. You know? Yeah. Right. And and of course, it's still an area of of learning for people in our fields, for their leaders, for leaders in talent and HR who might not have that deeper understanding. And so there was some education around that of why, why we can't just wholesale take these, even though they're not part of the program, they actually are. If we're directing them to them, they're gonna have yeah. our, our IP addresses, you know, yeah. by the hundreds banging on this article. That's problematic, you can't do that, we don't own it. And so we put together a curation um, basically a curation journal and we had each of these links we went and contacted each of the owners and we found out if um, you know would you would you allow us to use this article in a collection of resources it's not part of a formal delivery program it's in the moment of need we want to give them more to be able to round out guess what half of them said no um, or you need to pay me for it but guess what wow. half of them, about half of them said, you know what, that's actually really good for me. I'm a, I'm a small author and you mm -hmm. know, I, I posted this blog post and um, yeah, that'd be good for me. And so in that yeah. we captured the email, which was their written permission. We, we took that, we embedded it into this Excel workbook. And so we had written proof of the express permission for every single um, digital asset link that we were using in that program. There and you so go. That, yes, and so that allows really great things. It, it covers your bases. Um, it provides a permanent record of, of the request of their response. And um, it allowed us to move forward really with, with a, a good, clear conscience, knowing that we were doing the right thing by client, doing the right thing by all of these really great authors who had important points of view that we wanted to be able to share. Yeah, and it's, it's it might sound intimidating, but I can't imagine that's really it's not that much work when you in the grand scheme of things when you think when you think about it, just like taking the time to reach out to the dozen or so folks that you want, you know, you know, to a couple dozen people or probably less depending on the program, keeping track of it. It's not that much work, really, right. in, in right. the scope of everything else that you're doing. And based on what you were saying, you know, it sounds like it probably also again talking about incentives creates a world where it probably incentivizes you to go hunt for those lesser known but brilliant yes. people and things out there like everybody everybody knows about you know the top five ten leadership development books out there they're cited a thousand times they're probably generally going to be the ones that are like no we want you to pay us whereas if you find the other people who are still doing brilliant work um who want to or are looking for avenues to work with organizations right. um it creates a good a great incentive structure lovely you know and it could be something um for instance someone writes a really compelling uh post on linkedin they write an article on linkedin you know these are people who obviously are are large and well-known authors are writing on linkedin but there are so many incredibly um, mm -hmm. bright people with 
with great perspectives, what about asking them if you could interview them and maybe do a recording or a, a very low tech podcast. And I know Matt, your, your work is in the world of podcasting and that has a very clear and defined view and perspective. You know, but but being able to capture a recording or being able yeah. to have a video call that then becomes, yeah. you know, an asset. A lot of these people are willing to do that, to give their time. Yeah. And so there's yeah. a lot of ways to to go about that, that that keep you whole, that um, help you to create different things, not just a link to something to read, but yeah. some, some other types of content to consume. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I think, I think that's, I would really encourage people to, before you just, cause I'll admit when I, when I, when we first started our conversation, uh, back many months ago at dinner, I was kind of just like taken aback just like this, this can't be right. This, this, this seems like an impossible bar, but the more you sit with it and the more you really think about it, it's not an impossible bar. It's something that's very realistic. Um, so I encourage people to really take a minute to, to think about how they're using these assets making sure they're doing it appropriately, coming up with better ways to get this stuff done. Um, to, to close out and really appreciate your time, and I wanna respect your time, we do have three kind of rapid fire questions that we, we try to ask the, at the end with every guest. Yes. The first question, yeah, the first question is, what is one book that everyone should read? Not, not put in their learning program, but mm. <laughs> what is one book that everyone should read? Mm. You know, the book I'm reading right now, it has nothing to do with L&D, um, but, but it is called Being Mortal because so many of us are dealing with aging parents and mm. um, uh, some of us more so than others, everybody will deal with aging parents. And it's, it's not just a book for people with aging parents. It's like, oh man, if I'd had this book 20 years ago, I could have maybe coached my mom on some different behaviors now that she's 78, right? Yeah, so, yeah. That would be my recommendation. I think it should be a must read for anybody with people you care about who you might end up taking care of. <laughs> yeah, excellent. That is a, that is a great, great recommendation. Yeah. Um, okay. What is one skill? What is the one skill that has helped you most through your professional career? Mm, skill. It's a tricky one. Yeah, it's a good one because especially as the world has changed so much, I think learning agility, being able to keep an open mind. Um, and, and often, you know, it's really easy to get into a mode of, ah, I've got to deal with this situation or this emergency or this, that I've got to deal with this. You know, we're paid for our thinking ability. We're paid because we can solve the tough problems. And so I, I, I think that I would say maybe learning agility and kind of, uh, not not resilient in the sense of um, uh, as the, in the sense that we think of it, but I would say it's learning agility and kind of a positive mindset that mm. my job my job is to do the hard stuff. When I've got the easy stuff, yeah. I should probably appreciate it a lot more than I do because that's actually not why I'm in this job. I'm in this job to do yes. things. That's right. We are. That that is a, I, that is that is a really great mindset to have. If mm. like we're like we're here for the hard stuff. That's, That's why. Great. If the hard stuff didn't exist, we wouldn't have a job. So That's great. That's great. Yeah. And your network. So it's your learning agility and it's your network because you're not ever going to know everything yeah. to be able to do it all. And yep. so cultivating yep. those those relationships around you at work and in broader industry, boy, I'll tell you what, it's invaluable. I love it. I love it. 
Well, you know, especially for you, since you've had the opportunity to work in with for so many different organizations, I think this last question, I'm really interested in your response of what is the most common opportunity that you see for organizations to improve their talent development? Mm, 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 mm. Let's see. Huh. I think getting closer to our learners, I think it's a miss. I think we often find ourselves in order taker mode, Yes. which, which when we're in order taker mode, we're going to build a solution that maybe half of the people will like the other half of the people will feel like it was, it was spun up because of somebody said, build this. Yeah. And so, so getting to know who your learners are and what it is that they need, what you're, what are you actually solving for? Because oftentimes when you ask the question and you find out what you're actually solving for, what they've asked you to build is not going to solve it. And, and if you get close to your learners, like doing persona work, doing some empathy work, oftentimes you can figure out a better way to get it done that is less intrusive on our learners and that is easier for you to build and deploy. Yeah. That's it's it's so true. I think yeah. I was at a conference. I'm saying this a lot now, but I was I was speaking at a conference a couple of weeks ago where just because of kind of the nature of the the speakers, um, this kind of moment came out where we said um, asking because the question is often asked, how do we get the organization to care about learning? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the wrong question. The right question mm-hmm. is how do you get learning to care about the organization? Ooh. How do you get us, like you said, closer to the learner, closer to the business, closer to their problems so that we really, yeah, I love that that empathy frame that you mentioned of being able to really understand how, what their needs are, what their use cases are so that we can build the right solution. Um, that's a great one. If we can make their lives easier and connect that to some of the monetary levers that the business cares about, you're going to have a win, win, win the whole way around. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, and this has been amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I know you are incredibly busy. I really appreciate you being on. I think this is a topic that will rightfully like kind of open some eyes, but then give some really clear paths forward of a better way to deliver better for our learners. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. This was great. And I hope that you have a great rest of your fall and I know that I'll see you on that next pack meeting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. Have a, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you liked the discussion, make sure to hit like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. As a reminder, if your team is struggling keeping up with the training development demands of your organization, we want to help. Better Everyday Studios is a full-service instructional design team that can help you with everything from ideation to actual content creation and delivery. Please reach out to us using the link in the episode notes below. Have a great day.